Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 109. Last week we saw where Jesus was speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, uh, kind of warning them about the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on Moses' seat. He, he wanted to reiterate that they should Do whatever they tell you. I mean, respect the authority that they have sitting in Moses' seat of authority of interpreting the Torah and uh, trying to implement that in their everyday lives, but not do the actual works that they do themselves because they don't practice what they preach. And he, he showed that they were actors, so to speak. They had their phylacteries really long and they want to take the seat of honor at feast um they want to go out of their way to be called by rabbi by others um and jesus is showing them like ultimately all of that is nonsense now that the ultimate teacher the true school of teaching has come uh and that is the messiah that is the christ himself and he ends it with phrases that he said in the past about if you truly want to be great then you need to humble yourself um so and yet you need to be the servant of all rather than trying to have others serve you yeah and i don't think we mentioned it in the last episode just a a curious question so after jesus's death and resurrection and so he's in a way you could say he He's the beginning of this new sect of Judaism, the ones that are the believers, the Christians, if you want to say it that way. Who did Jesus set up as the new authority in that realm? Would it be the apostles? Yeah, and and who was actually the head of the church? Immediately, not immediately, soon after Jesus' death. Uh, was it Peter? James, his brother Ah. James. Yeah. Ah. And people, they often miss that, but James becomes the leader of the church, and there are others who are, you know, uh, involved in the authority, but authority rested in Jerusalem. It's It's a cool picture. But anyway, that's just a side note, curiosity thing, so there you go. So hey, let's get down to some real business. Remember I said we were going to look at the seven woes and then we didn't? Well, now we're going (laughs) to. So this starts in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, and there's a similar version in Luke 11, 52. I'm actually going to read both because they're different enough and interesting enough we might get something from it. So Matthew says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Okay, that sounds pretty bad all in and of itself. Let's see what Luke says. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves 
and you hindered those who were entering. So you can see how, wow, those sound pretty different, and yet there are some similarities, right? So that's why I've put these two together. And side note, remember, we're pulling some things from way back in Luke 11 because we didn't really cover them at the time because they, you know, for the most part, they match here, and we're kind of considering them one, one thing. So anyway, there you go. Now, getting back to the text, though, you've shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So we have uh, a number of times throughout the prod- the podcast sort of suggested that, you know, it seems there was a real possibility, a real opportunity for the kingdom to come in the first century. It was a real offer, a real thing. Jesus came saying the kingdom is at hand. Had there been true repentance, it would have happened. But obviously, looking back, we know it did not come in its fullness, and we yet await that. He inaugurated the kingdom. There's there's a bit of a foreshadowing, if you will, but the real kingdom awaits. So now, there are others who look at this and they think this wasn't a real offer at all because, you know, God knew that they wouldn't accept. Well, maybe. I guess that could be true. And, I, I mean, if it bothers you that we say it, well, you know what? We can disagree and still love each other, all that. But that's what we have done. So either way, though, we do see something clearly in these verses right here. The blame, if you will, if we call it that, for the delay of the kingdom is placed at the feet of the Pharisees and scribes. At least here. Who else have we blamed along the way, Samuel? Uh, Sadducees. Sadducees. Anybody else you can think of? Uh, chief priests. Yeah, yeah. They're they're sort of connected with the Sadducees. And then there's also groups like the Herodians. Uh, so everybody had a hand in it. But right here, it's the Pharisees and scribes, which, by the way, Luke calls lawyers. Same people. Now, it's... It's very reasonable just to, especially looking at the whole Gospels all put together, to apply the blame across the board, and maybe we could just call it the leadership in Israel. That's a good way to do it, because it involves them all. Now, also, we can't say, even though, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, we can't say that this is every scribe and every Pharisee. We know that there are some who repented and were faithful, and some even did that before his death. Some did that after his death. So just be careful when you're using these categories or or labels or whatever, you're not really including them all. And here, when we think of something like scribes and Pharisees, it's it's, uh, somewhat representative of the leadership generally. So anyway, those are just some, you know, warnings. Just keep that stuff in mind. Now, this is the first of seven woes. And actually, and actually, uh, as we start to look at them, they're, they're, you, know, you could probably count more, but we'll go with seven, whatever. But here's what's cool. That word woe, it's actually the opposite of another really popular word somewhere in the gospel. Samuel, I, I know that's like so wide open, who could ever guess, but I'm going to ask anyway. What do you think woe is the opposite of? Mm, I feel like whenever I hear the phrase woe to you, maybe the opposite is like, blessed are you. 
Exactly. If you go back to the beginning of that Sermon on the Mount, he kept saying over and over, blessed are or blessed are, right? And that word was ashray. This word for what? It's the opposite of that. So now, having said everything we've said so far, this list of woes, even though we said, hey, you know, we could be talking about leadership generally, this list of woes does appear to be very Pharisee-centric. So, you know, fair's fair. Jesus is picking at things that are more tightly associated with the Pharisees than any other group. However, you know, if you walk away from this with that just really ambiguous kind of thinking that just says the Pharisees are bad, well, just remember you're not accounting for the whole story. Now, one might say that the reason Jesus is so hard on them is because they were so close, at least compared to any other sect of Judaism, and not because they were so far, and, and I mean from the kingdom. They, they were actually close, if only they would have understood better, but, you know, that's why he's picking on them. If he was attacking the worst of the worst, shouldn't he have gone after the Sadducees and the Herodians much more? And I think the obvious answer is yes. I don't even think it's very debatable, really. But Jesus wasn't the only one who was highly critical of the Pharisees. So were the Pharisees. And I know that sounds weird, but if you go back and you read a lot of writings, especially of this time period, they were critical of themselves in many of the exact same ways that Jesus was. And remember that we would suggest that, you know, if you had to shove Jesus into only one sect, well, he would have fit much better with the Pharisees than any other. So there's that. But anyway, what's this woe, Samuel? What's the first woe? It's talking about hindering or preventing entrance to the kingdom. Now, it's bad enough that they weren't accepting of the kingdom for themselves. They were not choosing to truly repent. They were not going for the kingdom when the king was right there in front of them, but they were preventing others. They found a way to make it worse keeping others out. Now, Matthew says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And Luke says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. And what's interesting, shutting the door, or, you know, it doesn't say door, but you get it, shutting something or taking away a key, they both seem to allude to some sort of entrance or door or gate, stuff like that. Now, if we remember Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Jesus' instruction to enter by the narrow gate, well, maybe that gives us a slightly clearer vision of what's happening here. The Pharisees were teaching a strict adherence to the law, the letter of the law. Samuel, is that all bad? No. No, it's not. But... They were not comprehending the end or goal of that law. And what's that, Samuel? What what are some things that we always say? Um, Mimicking God's attributes in our reality, like goodness, love, mercy. Yeah. Restorative justice. Yeah, yeah. Even just kindness, all of those things. Those are the end goals of the law, and that's what they, they just weren't getting it. And... Their lives demonstrated that. 
This was not the way to the kingdom. And how do people generally... Okay, take it out of this context, Samuel. I'm just saying in everyday life, people all around, just look all around the world. How do people generally act toward leadership? They gravitate towards it. They want to follow it. They do. Yeah. There are not... If every single human wanted to lead... This would be one rough world, I'm telling you. (laughs) But people don't. Generally speaking, people are very willing to follow. And so if these leaders in and around Israel were not going to follow Jesus, they were not going to go after this offer of the kingdom, all that kind of stuff, well, then these people who are naturally, just generally speaking, going to follow, well, they're going to miss out on the kingdom too. The Pharisees, their, their teaching and example was hindering and preventing others from entering the kingdom. And if, if it were true, as we have suggested, if it really is true that the kingdom was, was a real offer, it could have indeed happened in the first century, then you got to look at this and go, oh my gosh, they stopped the redemption with their unbelief, their rebellion, their refusal to accept. That's crazy. And, and, and especially when you understand, like, in a way, he keeps calling them hypocrites, they were just play-acting as God's people. And, and they were being called to, you know what? Be real. Really follow. Really obey. Really repent. Whatever. I, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. But woe to them. All right, Samuel. Comments? What do you got? Yeah, I just really like the aspect of you bringing up that Jesus is being so hard on them, potentially because they were so close. And I just wanted to add that I'm just thinking about from my one singular year of being in the education world, like teaching high school, um, if I had a classroom of students that were losing their minds like their behavior is just completely out of control like if i didn't care about them wanting to succeed in my classroom to be able to learn the content pass my class move on to the next grade level whenever i see that behavior i would just kick back at my desk at the front of the classroom and put a lollipop in my mouth and you know just let them have at it but yeah yeah you know i I struggled with them. I I like fought back against that behavior to try to get them to see their error in hopes that it could change and that our classroom could grow in the dynamic of learning and everything. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing. Like if he didn't care about wanting the Pharisees to get it, then what is the point of him even offering this woe in the first place? Um, I just think it's, it's testament that he does care and he wants them to get it. I just, I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever been a parent and I'm just going to assume, you know, decent, somewhat of a parent, uh, you know, why do you occasionally have to bust your kid's chops? What's going on there? Are you just trying to tear them down? Are you just trying to beat them up? No, you're trying to get them to wake up to some truth, some goodness that they're obviously missing, and you, you want them to understand. It's a, yeah, that's a great picture, Samuel. I like that. 
something else popped in my head. I, I'm pretty sure this is something I heard Tim Mackey say. I, I hope I got that right. But he was talking about the law, and, and, and you know, we, and the reason this is important is because modern day, we look at the law, and at least in America, and to us, it's text. And if you've got any sort of question about, you know, what is really being said or what's the law, you know, what's the actual law versus what does somebody think it is, or the, the true authority, if you will, is the text of that law. And that is exactly the way these Pharisees and scribes, that's the way they're treating it. Do not murder. Okay, I haven't killed anyone. I'm good to go. But what's important is to understand that that is exactly not what the law is. Of course, there is text, but, but they're only like examples and, and things that lead you, that you're supposed to understand. So if, like Jesus said, if it says do not murder, what's really behind that. What are we talking about? And he, you know, backed it all the way up to, you know what? You shouldn't even hate your brother because that's what eventually leads to murder. So so the the Pharisees are a great example of people I think doing exactly what we do a lot of today because that's the way we're accustomed to dealing with the law. But when we say law in the scriptures, we shouldn't look at it that way. It's more of a I, like the reason it's contained in stories and not always in commands and all of that kind of stuff is because it's supposed to be something that sets us on the road to thinking, cogitating, meditating, trying to figure out what is the real personality and will and intention and desire of God in all of this. So anyway, that's just a, that's free, totally free this morning. <laughs> Bonus. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was Tim Mackey. That sounds like something he would say. But anyway, he's awesome either way. You can go listen to him. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, another woe. Uh, now, this is in, uh, if you have a Bible that doesn't have this, that's okay. We're just going to read it out loud anyway, because some people have it. This is in Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for... You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, again, this verse isn't showing up in every translation, and as you probably heard, or if you have it, as you can see, it is just a repeat of things that we've read above. But we're going to go ahead and uh, do this one, label this one, and and uh, this one is about swindlers and hypocrites, but I'm going to go ahead and label it number 1.5 because it's not in everybody's translation. So anyway, the swindlers and hypocrites, we've talked about this in Scripture. That's, that's more like actors and pretenders. So these scribes, or lawyers, as Luke calls them, they had great control over, well, a number of things in Israel, but just as an example, one thing would be like wills and estates. And some are suggesting that behind the scenes, the estates of widows were being used to enrich themselves. 
Okay, so there's this thing. What do you do when the only person left in a family is this widow? Maybe you had a, a, a husband and wife, there were no kids, or maybe the kids died, or who knows, whatever. The widow's the only one left. Well, then what happens? If there were, and I guess it'd have to go a lot further, there were no brothers and, you know, a number of things. Well, in that case, the temple was kind of like the final inheritor. I don't know what else to call that. It's it's like, well, there's really no one else to give it to that's like a, a direct relation, and so it goes to the temple. And and in a sense, that was a way of saying it went back to God. And it was supposed to be then somehow used or reallocated back for the people and the tribes, because ultimately everybody had their own little section of the land and all that kind of thing. And it it was all supposed to be a way of actually keeping it where it was supposed to be, not for people to take advantage of it. But the scribes and Pharisees were, they're just kind of taking it for their own possession. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. It sounds crazy, but, you know, I'm just trusting this is what some people have written about that time era. They, They were Instead of like reallocating it or using it in the appropriate families and that kind of stuff, they were actually selling it, selling it off and taking the profits, right? Now, all the while, you know, of course, they're making their great show of piety, fake piety, I guess, long prayers, remember the, the broad phylacteries, the long fringes, etc. They, they were setting themselves up for some severe judgment because, again, they're just play-acting as God's people. That's all I'm going to say about that one, because it's a lot of repeat stuff. What do you got, Samuel? I think maybe we talked about this previously, about the widow aspect of how the these Jewish leaders were taking advantage of them, and it, it just, with us saying previously that these people were following the letter of the law, like, very well, I just don't understand how they would do that in light of all of the places, especially in Deuteronomy, where there's just explicit reference about right. taking care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Like, like just one example in Deuteronomy twenty four uh, seventeen, it says, "Don't obstruct the legal rights of an immigrant or orphan. Don't take a widow's coat as pledge for a loan." Like, I mean, that's you could interject property there just as well as you could a coat so i just right that just it's so mind-boggling to me like where's the letter of the law for them in this instance yeah and that's a great question uh there's a couple of things i think that are at play here one is and again i'm i'm trusting a lot of the things that i've read about this time period what they were doing my takeaway from, like, if you were trying to paint the image in your head, they weren't taking all of these things from the widows while the widows still lived. If they had a house or this or that or whatever, they, they were okay. But they were taking them after their death. Mm. They should have been doing something else. Okay, but that doesn't, that, that isn't like leaving them off the hook or anything. There were, there are examples, a number of, remember how, here's a good one. Uh, for the Sabbath. So God said, keep the Sabbath, right? Now, if you went back to the Torah or, or other places anywhere in Scripture, trying to get some real detail, exactly what does it mean? How am I supposed to do that? There's little or maybe none, depending on how you interpret things. 
So what did the Sanhedrin and, and all of these judges, etc., across time do? Well, they came up with a list of, I believe the number is 39 things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. That's, that's a way of entering into rest. And remember, they used uh, the building of the temple and everything that was involved in that, everything they could turn into some sort of a common you know, human activity. And, and it's like, on one hand, it's like, oh, okay, that was pretty smart. That's kind of cool. Glad they did that. But what they were doing is they were bringing detail to God's commands in a way that made it easier to, to follow them. And that's not an all bad thing, but <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine how that could be twisted and messed up and really used for the wrong purposes. And so here, you may also see there may have been uh, decisions along the way, some sort of legal rulings that that made it so, you know, if you were really smart and really conniving, you could actually, you know, find your way through and around these things to do some pretty heinous stuff. And so I think those are the kind of things that are going on, Samuel. They, they, they And we've said it before, you can keep, if you're talking about the letter of the law, you can keep the Torah perfectly and still be an absolute cad of a person. <laughs> and, and what that means is, okay, technically, you're not keeping the Torah perfectly because you're mm. only keeping the letter and you're completely misunderstanding the goal and purpose, etc. So yeah. I think that's the stuff, Samuel. I think that helps. Yeah. People are going to do this kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about God and the law or, you know, like your own country and, and their laws or kids in your house and the law that the parents lay down. Or <laughs> I mean, it mm-hmm. just doesn't matter. People do this. It's ter- terrible. Yeah. Who am I thinking of? You're thinking of Charles Barkley. Terrible. Charles Barkley. That's right. Terrible. Yeah. It's all. Uh, he is. Bunch of I knuckleheads. Like <laughs> I just love hearing him talk. Anyway, <clears throat> where are we at? Uh, let's do the next one, unless you had anything else. Nope. All right. Continuing in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch. <laughs> All right. Woe to them. This sounds pretty bad. Now, we're going to officially call this number two, uh, and it's about evangelism, which is very interesting because that's a really popular, you know, tool or or thing in the Christian community. So let's see what we're talking about here. It talks about proselytes. Proselytes are people who convert to Judaism. When, When you're reading your gospel, that's what that is, okay? So first question, Samuel. Is Jesus saying that evangelism is bad? I don't believe so, no. No, no. And this is, it's always important to see when he's picking on a thing, make sure you understand exactly what he's picking on and don't, don't over apply it to where it doesn't belong. He is not picking on evangelism. However, and this is an important point, evangelism, like in this day, in this time, I mean, it definitely wasn't much of a thing, but in some sense, I mean, to better understand it, it would probably be better to just think of it as, you know what, evangelism wasn't even really a thing. It just wasn't. 
Now, along the way, people were drawn to Judaism for various reasons, but Judaism didn't go looking for them. And that is to say, Jews didn't like go out trying to bring people in. Now, there were times that conversions were performed for various reasons, like maybe the sake of marriage. That, that's an easy one to see and imagine and understand. And sometimes conversions were made for political arrangements. And these political arrangements quite literally could have been far outside the land of Israel. And so I, I, I don't know that this is exactly what Jesus is poking at here, but this is a really good option because it's kind of a weird thing to pick on when evangelism wasn't much of a thing. So these political range arrangements and the idea that they had to travel far, you know, perform the conversion, all that kind of thing, the reason some people think that that's what we're talking about here is because, number one, the conversion doesn't appear to be very sincere, twice as much a child of hell kind of thing, right? And any Torah observance that they would have been involved in was likely just for show. Hey, you married a Jew, and so you have to do this now so people get the idea that you're a Jew. Now, this, at least it is supposed, would make the proselyte twice the child of Gehenna that they were. And I want to point that out, too. Again, when it uses the word hell, it's talking about Gehenna. It's not talking about that mythological end-of-the-world kind of thing. It's talking about in between death and resurrection, that time in the grave, there is paradise and Gehenna. Okay? So anyway, just saying that. So, I don't know. This one is kind of a weird one because it doesn't seem to fit really, really smoothly with what we know of the culture and the time, and yet there are some things that we can point to, and it makes sense that they're traveling across sea and land, and they're not really, you know, a child of God as much as they are a child of Gehenna, that kind of thing. So there's that. Now, again, I want to go back to just practically speaking, the issue here isn't in the making of converts, whether you're thinking about Christian evangelism or you're thinking about Jewish and proselytes, whatever, it doesn't matter. The problem was in what happened after. And this is where I think it's so important that we relate this to today. Just like today, when someone converts to Christianity, let's say, they're supposed to be discipled. And what does that mean? Samuel, you want to throw some ideas out there? Uh, I mean, they've got to learn how to live out the commandments of the Torah in their everyday life. Yeah, they are supposed to be taught to think like God and Jesus. They are supposed to be trained to act like God and Jesus, speak like God and Jesus. They were supposed to be trained up in how to image God. It's the simple thing. Samuel, do you think there's a whole lot of that going on in the church, at least as we <laughs> know it in America? <laughs> Here, say this prayer. Right, yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. It just is not happening. So, so after they got them converted, which, okay, that's, that's a good thing. We can say that. I mean, it has to start somewhere. That's a good thing. The problem was they failed to instruct and demonstrate properly. And that's true in what we're talking about here 
in, in first century Judaism, etc., and it's true for what we talk about today. They're not really instructing and demonstrating properly. Now, because of this, this disciple, they never learned, or proselyte or whatever, they never learned to be in his image, and therefore, they're not any more useful than they were before their conversion. They're not any more useful after they're saved than they were before they're saved. They think they feel better. Woo! Fire insurance, whatever you want to call it, right? But the scribes and Pharisees, it's just another example of them going to great effort to do religious things, but to no real effect. They're just play acting. We've said that a few times as God's people. And, you know, side note, I think this is a lot of what goes on in the church today. A lot mm. of people, you know, doing a lot of effort to do religious things, but it's not to any real effect. We're just play acting as God's people. Now, you yeah. may disagree with that. That's cool. I'm not trying to be Mr. Hate on the church or anything, drinking the haterade, <laughs> but I think it's a real issue. So anyway, what do you got, Samuel? Nothing other than it's just really, really convicting. It just... It almost feels like they're abandoning these people who chose to convert over to Judaism. And, you know, if you're trying to apply that to today with wanting people to follow Jesus and then once you get them to say the prayer or make the decision or whatever and then nothing comes after that, you could say the same thing. It's like it's a form of leaving people out to dry, uh, like, if we're supposed to mimic God, you know, and God says to his people, like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then, like, in our discipleship relationships, you know, right. when we come alongside someone, we should we should not leave or forsake them uh, as they're learning to walk out this journey in their life. Yeah, it's very, very sad. A lot of times, and again, I'm speaking of my experience in the American church, a lot of times it looks more like this. Hey, now that you're saved, now that you're born again, uh, you got to come to church every time the doors are open. You need to find a place where you can serve. And when we do special activities that feel very churchy, like, you know, having a some sort of food line or, or whatever it might be, uh, you need to participate in those things. Be a good, active member of our social club. Mm. That's not discipleship. There is not one part of that that feels anything like real discipleship. And so, yeah, this is a, I think it should be very convicting. But let's keep reading, because there's more. All right. Uh, oh, this one's kind of long. Look at that. So this is Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Whew, says this. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar 
swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Whoa. This actually ties into what we've already talked about a little bit, Samuel, the the thing where they're they're, uh, making up rules that kind of allow them to maneuver and do weird things, right? So, interesting side note, this is the only one of the seven woes that does not begin with that phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's kind of weird. I have no real explanation for it. I'm just pointing it out. I don't know why that is, but there you go. And we're still, we're going to call this one number three. It's about swearing oaths. And we've talked before about how it had become a popular thing to use words to leave a little bit of wiggle room to get out of oaths and vows. We talked about that specifically. You know, if you say it this way, you're bound. If you say it this other way, you're not bound. Now, to be fair, we don't know the original intention. Maybe it started out good, but it became self-serving mumbo-jumbo that was just used to go back on your word. That's all it was. Any vow or oath to God was considered korban. That's a, it's a Jewish word, and it, it relates to uh, the sacrifices. They were also korban. There's something in that. So anyway, they were dedicated to God. That's what korban is. Now, the gold in the temple was also dedicated. The sacrifices were dedicated, etc. So the thinking was that any oath, which in a, you're, you're, you're making something korban, okay, it could be made by any other dedicated thing, any other korban thing. So you, you want to make something korban, well, you do it by, you know, dedicating it according to something that's already korban. It's, it's kind of like when using God's name. So since the temple, the altar, heaven, etc., were not technically korban, they didn't get dedicated... Oh, well, then they didn't count. Do you see what they did there? Mm-hmm. They had these awesome things, and then they had some other things that got specifically dedicated, and so to dedicate a thing, you had to do it by another dedicated thing, whatever. That's where they went with this. And so Jesus calls them blind men or blind fools, whatever, for thinking this way. And then he shows them how to think properly. The gold in the temple, it wasn't special because it was gold. And it wasn't special because it was dedicated, which is what they were focusing in on. It was the temple itself that was great. Remember, this was created as a space for God in creation. The temple was the great thing. It was also the temple that made the gold special. Now, you could think gold is special for any number of reasons, whatever, But for it to actually be sacred, it was only because of the temple that it was. So similarly, the sacrifice, it wasn't special just because it was a sacrifice uh, or because it was dedicated. Those are good, awesome things. But it was the altar itself that was the great thing. God provided that altar as a way to draw near to him. So 
Again, like the temple, it was the altar that made the sacrifice special or sacred, not the other way around. And so uh, I, I think that this is very clear. They weren't understanding, but for us, it seems like, yeah, okay, got it. I get it. Now, Jesus, he goes a little bit deeper. And first, he kind of sets it up. He says, hey, if you swear by the altar, you're actually swearing by the altar and everything on it. And this fits with everything he said so far. And then, you know, he says, again, if you swear by the temple, you're swearing by the temple and him who dwells in it. Now, that's interesting because you might have expected him to say everything in it, the altar and everything on it, the temple and everything in it, but he doesn't. He says the temple and him who dwells in it. And I don't know about you, but that feels like we just you know, push the pedal to the metal. We went zero to 100. Their goofy little tricks that they were using to try to get out of their oaths weren't actually fooling anybody, especially God, and except maybe themselves. They maybe believed them. I don't know, whatever. Their oaths were before God, who sees and hears and knows all, okay? And To God, they were liable for their words. No amount of wordplay is going to shield them, slash, or us, from the true consequences of their actions or their words. So Jesus adds, though, one more bit about swearing by heaven. Now, we didn't actually get any details earlier. He just throws in this swearing by heaven right at the very end. But this, it's all part of the same thinking that we've explained above, but swearing by a generic term like heaven, again, it was used as uh, wiggle room when compared to swearing by God himself. Even though everyone knew that most of the time the reason they were even using the word heaven is because they were trying to avoid saying the word God, and so they were just using heaven as a circumlocution, using the word in place of a word, right? So Jesus follows the same pattern he's already been laying down, and he shows that swearing by heaven is also equal to swearing by God's very throne, which is, of course, the seat of all power, and authority. And it's the same as swearing by God himself, because heaven is God's domain. So what he was doing was basically removing all of their rationale or or whatever they were using to try to get out of this stuff to show them they were just plain wrong. And all of this behavior, you know, the, the scribes, Pharisees, all of its surrounding oaths showed them to be truly unserious underneath all of their veneer of supposed serious behavior, all of the acting they were doing. And I'm going to say it again. They were just play acting as God's people. And as we go through these, man, we we need to be taking this stuff in and taking it serious. Is this us? Are we just play acting as God's people? Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'll leave it at that because there's more to go. Now, Paul, my mind went to back to the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus um, in Matthew 5. Uh, the section is verses 33 through 37 about oaths. And, you know, he he's talking about not swearing an oath in all, uh, either by heaven 
or by the earth or Jerusalem. He and then he ends it by saying, "Let your yes be yes, or your no be no." Right. Um, and I just wonder, like, I wonder why he didn't bring that up again here because the 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 danger of making oaths seems to be so prevalent. Um, right. I, yeah, I just that's where my mind went, and I'm not I'm not trying to correct Jesus and his teaching I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out like you said that before man like why why wouldn't you bring it up again well I think the things that pop into my head immediately are number one who was Jesus talking to when he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount was it crowds of people uh, yeah, it's it's his disciples, and it's it's sort of understood and expected that the crowds were either there or gathered while he was teaching or whatever. And so he's giving instruction on what you should do. So that's one thing. And here, who's he talking to? Uh, well, scribes, Pharisees. Yeah, and you you see that there's kind of a different point when when you know call it teacher rabbi sits down to instruct. He's, he's trying to point the way to the good thing. This little section here with the seven woes, this is kind of going back and picking on what they're doing wrong. Showing the, the foolishness in what they're doing. There doesn't seem to be as much of a point for here's the correct path, if only you would listen. He's, he's more focused on, I want to show you why what your current path, why it is so bad or stupid or foolish or whatever. So I I don't think the fact that he didn't correct them and say, man, you're so dumb, you ought to just not do oaths at all. I, I don't think that that takes away from that teaching in any way, but it's like, this is what you've been involved in. This is what you've been doing, and the way that you're going about it is wrong. And if you're gonna keep it up, which I think he probably expected they would, at least understand what you're doing. Because again, we have in the Torah, in in the law, Jewish law, the thing that they were covenantly bound to uh, was the idea that, hey, if you're gonna speak an oath, then you better do this and do this. You have to keep it, right? So it wasn't as if Jesus was removing that and saying, hey, uh, I'm changing the law. Don't ever do an oath. Jesus was merely saying, it's really not buying you anything. You don't have to do it. The command was not make an oath. The command was when you make an oath, make sure you keep it. So I, I think there's a, a little bit of that at play as well, because you know there's nothing wrong with making an oath. And if they were going to keep it up, the, the real important point was that they know what they were doing wrong so that they could begin to do it right. I don't know if those help, but there you go. That's my thoughts. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you said that because, like, if we go back to the very first woe that we started with today and then just worked our way down, I mean, this is kind of a harsh reality, but there's not a whole lot of silver lining in terms of Jesus offering or requesting these people, like, to to show the correct way in the same way, tone, tone, in a tonality form that we see like in the Sermon on the Mount that you t- talked about in terms of teaching and ushering the disciples. It, uh, these woes are more like a admonishment, like yeah. this is this is your reality, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is 
the consequences um, that are going to be coming your way if yeah. this is the you know the way that your story ends right here right now. Yeah, good point. Good way to say that. Yeah, it's not something I thought to to bring out, but the conversation did it. So yay! <laughs> Anything else? I'm good. Yeah these these are these are good because on one hand you feel like they're not aimed at you directly because he's talking to someone else and it's very very specific in their world all that kind of thing and so because it feels a little bit outside of ourselves it's sometimes a little easier to take in that kind of truth i mean if he was like standing in front of us busting our chops about a thing <laughs> That would that would feel really, really bad, if you know what I'm saying. This, we have the opportunity to learn from other people's errors, which is always a great way to mm-hmm. go. Not many people do it, but it's a great way to go. So yeah, it's good. All right, well, I'm going to go on. There's another one here. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, and I'm bringing in here a related verse from Luke chapter 11, verse 42, but I'm not going to read it. So here we go in Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's great. So, uh, this, uh, okay, this is number four, and uh, we're going to, I don't know, call it like weighty matters or whatever. Oh, this is so good. So, so good. Let's see if we can get through this. <laughs> okay, it's it says you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Okay, this is a way of saying or communicating that they were following the letter of the law down to even the most minute detail. Now, I think that we could look back and say, okay, technically, this tithing, mint, dill, cumin, this isn't even required in Torah. This was another thing that the Pharisees had added. Now, again, you may look back and go, well, their intention was good. It's like, look, everything belongs to God. If we tithe this and this and this, we, we should just do everything. It's a good thing. Maybe. But... It was an addition. I think we could say it that way. And now, again, importantly, in the context, in what you see here, right in the text, this is not meant as a cut down. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, it's actually commendable. It's praiseworthy in some way, and we're going to talk about why. But tithing like that wasn't a a cut down or a, a slam, okay? Here's the problem. They have neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, now in the law, when we're, when we're thinking about the law in the sense of Judaism and covenants and covenant terms and conditions, there isn't a command that just says explicitly, hey, do justice, in the same way that there is a command that is very explicit, like do not murder. But as we've said before, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, they were the end goal of the law. All of these individual laws were supposed to be pointing there, leading there. It's where all the minute details 
we're heading. And what's interesting, Samuel, if we went back to Micah 6, 8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. That's one of the ways that the law is summarized. Remember how we said, love God, love your neighbor was a summary of the law? Mm -hmm. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That is a summary of the law. That's a good one. Now, the Pharisees, and I think that, again, to some degree, we can sort of generalize this to all of the leadership, whatever. But the Pharisees are notorious in the Gospels for missing the deeper instruction of the law. And that is, oh, look, Tim Mackey, twice now, he referred to this as the law's ideal, right? So there is the plain meaning, the plain text, the specific instruction. It's a real thing, okay? But all of these things individually and together, they represented the law's ideal. So what I want to do, Samuel, I want you to read from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We're going to highlight one specific part of this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah. And that final phrase is the one that is so important. Paul is, okay, He's actually talking to Gentiles at this point, but even more so for Jews and Judaism. How is it that you understand the law? How is it that you understand Torah, God's will, God's desire, intention, whatever you want to call it? How do you do that? By testing, Hmm. you discern what is the will, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which I think is a way of saying, yeah, you don't just read the letter of the law. You've got to understand what it's leading you to. And, and so that's another way to see it and say it. And, and now, now here, oh, this is also so important. Notice what Jesus says. These you ought to have done. Now, some people look at this. Uh, let me read the whole thing. You ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, people argue about which is which. Are you supposed to uh, is, is he saying you should have done the tithing or you should have done the justice and mercy and faithfulness or whatever? I think it's actually quite clear because he says without neglecting, okay? So you should have tithed these things. What? That's not even in the law, at least not explicitly. So Jesus isn't busting their chops for keeping the letter of the law or for even going a little bit beyond it with good intention, okay? The letter of the law, it's not a bad thing, not in Jesus's eyes. You ought to have done these things. More importantly, Jesus is busting their chops because they're neglecting, you know, the good stuff. There's a saying Uh, Oh, and I already said it. No wonder it was fresh in my mind. And we said it before, Samuel. A man can keep the entire law, all of the commandments, and still be a cad. So if you're keeping the law only as a matter of aligning with the specifics of the written text, you've missed the point. That's not what it's about. Just as Jesus saw, don't hate your brother, we've talked about that, the ideal in the command, do not murder, the text, see that? Just as Jesus did that, God expected Israel 
and I'm going to say us by extension, to plumb the depths, to dig deep, to meditate, to ruminate, since we're in an agricultural area, Samuel, on the meaning behind the goal of, the ideal of any particular command. And I'm going to say this, it isn't even limited to just outright commands. You're going to see this through the stories and the poems and everything else that you find in your scriptures, especially the Torah. It's all fair game. We need to dig deep so that by testing, we might discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, the Torah, it defines righteousness, and obviously, it defines sin, but it shows us who God is. It's an expression of God's will for mankind. If you view it as just a rule book, you're not really seeing what is there. You are blind. And again, if you view it as a rule book, well, you may remove uh, some amount of sin from your life. And I think it's a small amount. This is the part I think Jesus is referring to as straining out a gnat. But because you've missed the real meaning, the real purpose, the real goal, there remain giant areas of sin, and they will remain untouched. And that's the part Jesus is talking about where you're swallowing a camel. It sounds ridiculous. But uh, just as a side note, in this day and in this time, it was actually very common to filter your wine through a cloth. Why? To get out the bugs. You were, you were removing the unclean insects. It was a way of trying to be kosher. But what's really funny is imagine if you did that. You strained your wine to get out the unclean insects, but then you sat down to a giant plate of camel meat, which is also an unclean animal. This is such a great little poke that Jesus is, it's so good. It's absurd, but that is a way of, of having an image in your head so you can understand how their neglect of the weightier matters really worked, why, why it was so ridiculous and stupid, and, and Jesus was going, woe to you. Mm. So there you go. It's good, Paul. I, I have nothing. I just feel convicted and meditating on all of these things that seeing the things I need to work on myself. Well, I totally understand. I mean, uh, I think, I think that, you know, when Jesus was speaking, he was very definitely going after some very specific people for some very specific things and all of that. And I, I don't, I don't have any idea from the text that Jesus was saying these things because he was hoping that other people would also be listening and, and thinking that, you know, they need to get their head correct also. Maybe he did. I mean, it's very reasonable to think that. But I, I definitely think the gospel writers, Matthew particularly, included it, not just because he wanted to take shots at the, the Pharisees and the scribes. I think it was because he felt that this was going to be important for all those who might read it after. And just like you said, even us today, it's convicting. And it should be. Good for you. Good for us. <laughs> 
Well, if you don't have anything, I think we're at the end of our time and we need to just shut up. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.